way of introduction to this, the why behind the what message, I want to begin by explaining an overarching concept that dictates our vision and one that influences virtually every decision we make at Calvary 316. Now, we will be getting in the last half of the study to kind of a rapid fire uh, sequence of various questions and various topics, but I feel like I want to start big to start with, a big idea that you need to understand that really explains who we are and what we do. We believe, as a group of elders, that in order to maintain unity as a church, as well as ministry effectiveness, it's essential that we keep our mission simple and broad. In Acts chapter 4, verse 32, we read that those in the Jerusalem church which is our blueprint for how to do church. We're told, Luke writing, that they were of one heart. This is cardia in the Greek. It's one spirit, life. As well as they were of one soul, one psyche in the Greek, one will. In many ways, the historian is describing for us a unique unity that existed within this very first church community. You see, their unity was based in the simple fact they all possessed the same heart, a heart for Jesus, as well as the singular will or the soul to further his kingdom and the lost world around them. It was not much more complicated than that. The cross of Calvary and Christ crucified had forged a bond between different individuals that transcended any of the trivial things that might have naturally separated them. Jesus unified them. His Spirit bonded them together. It's an important study, but of all the characteristics of church life, the Bible speaks most about the importance of unity among the brethren. It's an interesting thing when you look at the church. Constantly, we're getting the exhortation for the church to be unified. Jesus even prayed before his death and his betrayal. In John 17, verse 23, he prays for the church, for us, that you may be brought to complete unity, to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. This idea of unity, it's all over the scriptures. In 1 Corinthians 1, verse 10, you'll find the Apostle Paul pleading with really a dysfunctional church. In Corinth, he says, In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, May you agree with one another so that there may be no divisions and you may be perfectly united in mind and thought. In his letter to the Ephesian church, again, the apostle will exhort believers to make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Ephesians 4 verses 2 and 6. Finally, in writing to the Philippians, Paul encourages what is largely a healthy church that they might continue to be like-minded having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Philippians 2, verses 1 through 4. You know, it's interesting to consider. But do you know why the exhortation for church unity is so prominent throughout the Scriptures? Why Jesus makes a big deal about it, and Paul makes a big deal about it, and Peter makes a big deal about it. Here's why. The reason the Bible makes a big deal about the church being unified is because people don't naturally get along. That's why it's a constant thing. You know, it happens all the time, but it's often the incessant drama that stunts a church's ability to grow, and more importantly, to be healthy. 
constant complaining and bickering, man, it'll suck the life out of a church. And in the process, destroy community. And because of sin, we understand humanity struggle here to get along. People naturally blame, feud, divorce, fight, war, separate, segregate. This inherent tendency wrought by sin is why Jesus in John 13, verse 35, he said that the world will know that you are my disciples by your love for one another. It's not a natural thing. It's supernatural. It's from on high. It's God's love demonstrated to us, then flowing from us to others. It's otherworldly. You know, when the secular world urges for greater unity, it's kind of a buzzword right now. When the secular world urges, pleads for greater unity, more often than not, it's actually advocating not for unity, but for conformity. Instead of oneness with room for diversities, unity ends up being relegated to really nothing more than the pursuit of sameness. A unified world, they theorize, can only really be achieved when all distinctions and things that might make us different are eliminated. Monolithic thought, religious Unitarianism, one-party government, the elimination of natural, na national borders, identity, binary genders, economic communism, on and on and on. That's not unity. Sameness is hardly unity. When the Bible speaks of unity, it's describing something that is intrinsically unnatural to this fallen world and therefore can really only be achieved through a supernatural working of the Holy Spirit within our diversities. Unity in the midst of distinction is only attained when there is a greater commonality. For the church, for you and I, look no further than God's amazing grace. While the world seeks unity through conformity, and the Holy Spirit seeks to unify through our diversity, dysfunctions tend to arise within a church when the lines become blurred between unity and uniformity. Though unity cannot exist without the conformity of passions, one heart, many assume unity also necessitates the conformity of activity. Yes, we should have the same passion, but the manifestation of that passion might look differently. Here's the trap that many churches fall into, and one we do a lot to try to avoid. Over time, the vision or, or the driving passion for a church, it begins to narrow. Have you ever seen that happen? Though it's not always a cognitive decision, instead of the vision being nothing more than just Jesus and the furthering of his kingdom, it begins to narrow, often to some specific things that the pastors and the elders grow passionate about. And there are many examples. Churches get focused on politics, or social reforms, or homeschooling. Homelessness becomes the passion. Immigration, even moral stances on things like abortion and gay marriage. And while there is nothing wrong with any of those particular issues, since the vision for the church and what the leaders are now passionate about narrows, 
everything that church does begins to focus on fulfilling that singular vision. And it's at that point, it's tragic, but church members really only have one of two options. You either rally around the vision and the mission of a few, or you find yourself being accused of fostering disunity. As many of you know firsthand, division quickly follows. Though these churches will claim to have a unity among the brethren, in actuality, the ministry model only produces a uniformity of the brethren to the leaders setting the vision and establishing the mission. That's not unity at all. Because the bar for unity be, be, is set on things other than Jesus, other than his kingdom, other than God's grace, these churches become known very specifically as places that are judgmental, legalistic. Have you ever left a church because it was dominated by bullies? Or it lacked any type of diversity within its ministries? Unity in this dynamic becomes nothing more than the manifestation of everyone shutting up and going along. If you're not willing to do so, well, shame on you. You'll get run out. See, at Calvary 316, we believe a simple and broad vision is the best way to combat this particular tendency. And why do we want to avoid that tendency? So we'll avoid drama leading to disunity and dysfunction within our church community. Like this first church we see in the book of Acts, we believe unity is ultimately maintained when our vision is broad enough to allow for a diversity in how the fulfillment of those things, the fulfillment of the vision, we would call that mission, might manifest through each person individually to accomplish this. The corporate gathering of Calvary 316, as well as all of our official activities, are crafted with the singular vision of equipping the individuals who make up our church to fulfill their unique ministry in their world. That's our mission. Like to accomplish our Sunday morning service is designated for the teaching of God's word with every other activity just intending to help you foster relationships organically with others. While our collective unity is founded upon a heart for God's word and a love for Jesus, that's what brings us here, we intentionally allow for a diversity in the way things manifest individually by refusing to overcomplicate our core vision with anything that isn't essential. Just because a church is busy doing a lot of things doesn't mean that church is successful or, for that matter, faithful to their calling. Let me give you two examples to kind of reinforce what I'm talking about. Two real practical ones. It would be very easy for someone to browse through our church calendar posted at calvary316.tv, and conclude that we aren't engaging in enough community outreach. And yet, the problem with this criticism is that it fails to consider the way in which we seek to reach the community as a church. Instead of allocating resources to facilitate unofficial outreach, we instead spend our time equipping you to reach out to your community organically. I hope outreach is happening every single day when you're reaching out to others. Here's another example. Some might claim Calvary 316 isn't involved in enough 
official formal evangelism. In fact, they're likely to point out, I rarely, if ever, give an altar call. People will say, well, you're not setting up enough opportunities for us to go out and witness to the lost world. Again, though, the problem with such a perspective is that it's woefully incomplete. You see, the evangelical outreach of Calvary 316 occurs every single day. When you, equipped with what you learn, go out those doors and share your faith with those in your specific sphere of influence. Like ultimately, we don't believe the corporate gathering of our church, our vision, should focus on anything other than equipping you to fulfill the ministry God has called you to. That's our mission. It's a simple vision, but it leads to a very complex and diverse mission. Whatever you're doing to fulfill the Great Commission. Well, the understanding of our vision makes it clear why our Sunday service focuses on the teaching of God's Word and worship, corporate prayer, communion, I also want to take just a few minutes and explain why every other official activity of our church is social in nature. In the book of Acts, we find an interesting word. It's kind of what I would call Christianese. You don't really use it in in other applications, but it's this word fellowship. Fellowship. Over and over and over again, you'll find that word used to describe this first church community. You don't have to turn there, c316.tv, it's built in. But in Acts 2, verse 42, Luke, again, he tells us this church, this first church, there were certain things core to their DNA. They continued, we're told, steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, fellowship, in the breaking of bread, which would be communion, and in prayers. In the Greek, the word that we have translated as fellowship is the word koinonia, The truth is the translation of koinonia into English as fellowship, that's that's really poor. In in fact, there's not a really good English word to describe what koinonia is. It's so complex, it can be translated, aside from fellowship, as association, community, joint participation, togetherness, even oneness. The best way to define koinonia would be to describe it as life-sharing. The word describes sharing life in a Christ-centered community. The word spoke to a reality that the Christian experience wasn't designed to ever be a glow-it-alone proposition. The Jesus plus me is all I need mentality. No, 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 no. The Bible is clear. You need community with other Christians, koinonia. In fact, the early church found koinonia to be of such importance, it became one of their defining characteristics. You know, today, one of the great issues facing the church and a generation of socially inept individuals is how to foster koinonia within a church community. How do you do that? The first thing to keep in mind, and we always come back to this as a group of elders, is that when pursuing a remedy for that conundrum, how do we get people to connect? you have to always remember something important about koinonia. Real koinonia, real life sharing, this real Holy Spirit connection, it can never be artificially manufactured. It's not the manifestation of a work of a flesh. 
It, can, it can't be faith. You see, genuine koinonia can only organically manifest from the Holy Spirit naturally working in you and in a larger church community. What I like to call organic koinonia. This is how it happens. It happens when people come and congregate together on a Sunday. We come from all different places. And we meet here. That's pretty cool. But koinonia begins to happen when you then, after coming, move beyond some personal inhibitions and maybe even some fears to do something bold. Make a connection with someone else as the Spirit leads. And then it develops when you now exert a little bit of effort to develop maybe that connection outside of the walls of this building by, you know, crazy meeting again some other time during the week. Let me just give you one of many personal examples I could use. My family and the Intricans, Joe's one of our elders, we have very few natural commonalities. That, that's, that's a truth. Joe and Teresa are older than Jessica and I. Joe by a lot, Teresa just by a few years. Their children are adopted. Ours, homegrown. Their children are older than ours. Teresa's a working mother. Jessica's a stay-at-home mom. Joe's recently retired. I'll die in the pulpit. Ironically, Joe would never spend a Sunday watching the Masters Golf Tournament. I would never be caught dead watching NASCAR. Ever. Aside from these things, probably our greatest difference is that the Adams family, we're, we're Georgia dogs, and the Intricans hail from Rocky Top. And yet, in spite of all of our differences, and very few natural commonalities, one Sunday after church, Joe came up, and he invited Jessica and I, and at the time, baby Quincy, to his home for dinner. The more I've gotten to know Joe, Joe's not an extrovert. He's introverted, and that was a big step to invite the pastor over. We obliged, had a delightful evening, and in spite of everything that would say we would never be friends, over the years, we've become more than friends. We're family. And the truth, I can attribute that to nothing more than a work of the Holy Spirit providing organic koinonia. And Jessica and I are so grateful for the years of friendship. The fact that Joe invited us one Sunday afternoon. Never underestimate the friend you might make if you invite someone over. That connection. Whether it's grabbing lunch, inviting a family to your home for dinner, setting up a play date with the kids, getting together to watch a ball game, or grilling out with a few guys from church. All of these things can be forms of sharing life with one another. I have more meaningful conversations with people over watching a ball game. It's relaxed. Just sharing life. Building kononia. Now, I should add, it is impossible for your church to create koinonia for you. In fact, it is not our biblical responsibility to make friends for you. You need friends. I can't make friends for you. Nor can I be everyone's friend. 
in that sense. That said, we do know, we do understand that not everyone has the gumption or has the boldness, has the ability to, to make connections at church on their own. Introverted personalities can have a difficult time getting out of their bubble. This is why everything we do at Calvary 316, what we call moving beyond the service, is designed to give you a simple social venue to develop what you need, organic kononia. We can't make friends for you, but we can give you an opportunity to make friends. Our potlucks, sisterhood events, band of brothers shoots, connecting point on Sunday morning, even the cereal bar. All of these things are crafted, designed, intending to create a personal environment to make it easier for you to develop real friendships, real connections. And I should add, all we can do is provide you with opportunities. You see, Konania, until you see it as something you need, until you're willing to make a personal effort to be friendly, these type of relationships will never happen. Like, I can't tell you how often we've had someone leave the church because they said they didn't have any friends. When the truth, they never went to an event designed to help them develop friends. I can't help. This is one of the reasons that we have a church membership. You see, it's our conviction that Jesus did not institute the local church to be a place you simply attend or come to be served. Instead, Jesus designed the church to be a community of fellow Christians that you belong to. While it's true we're all members of the universal church, joining a local group of believers has always been, biblically speaking, an essential component for the Christian experience. Not only does the very concept of church membership oppose kind of this rampant church consumer mentality we see permeating our culture, but we believe formal membership challenges a Christian to view their local church as more than a place they attend by creating just a practical mechanism whereby they can choose to belong. This is why on our website we have a whole member section where you have the names, email addresses, etc. of other members of the church. So if you're lonely, you can reach out. Say, would you like to grab some coffee? I just need someone to talk to. Aside from these things, as you examine the structure, the organization of the church, the early church, two things become clear. The people recognized who their leaders were and the leaders knew who they were responsible for who they were responsible to care for, accountable to. The only way that dynamic is to have some form of membership. I should say as an aside, we believe membership really does boil down to two, only two conditions. First, are you a Christian? Cool. Secondly, do you want Calvary 316 to be your church home? If you answer yes to both of those, well, we would welcome you as a member of Calvary 316. Now, some large concepts behind the why to the what, those things out of the way. Let's spend the last few minutes and just kind of rapid fire. We're going to go through various topics in no particular order. Why does Andy, the worship leader, always wear a hat on Sunday? It's an important question. I know it's one that's really been on everyone's mind. It's really probably what brought you here. And if I could take a stab at an answer, my guess would be he didn't shower this morning, and his hair's a mess. Honestly, I've never known Andy to not wear a hat. 
I will say, as an aside, if someone wearing a hat to church, or for that matter, dressing casual, bothers you, I just would ask you to do me a favor. Next Sunday, come to me with a biblical justification. Justify your consternation about Andy wearing a hat, and we'll have a, we'll have a talk. Spoiler, you won't be able to, but you can knock yourself out. Why do we leave the baptismal pool in the sanctuary even when we aren't using it? First, leaving the baptismal set up to the stage with the stage extension and all, it allows us to have a baptism next Sunday if someone gives their life to Jesus today. And we wanted to make sure we could do that. And it's very difficult to do that if we're moving it back and forth. It's hard to move it on your own. The other reason we leave it set up is that if you're a new attendee and, and you're like maybe even this morning, like, man, I really want to get baptized, but I don't know how they do that. So like you'll never know until we have a baptism. So if you come in and you're new, you've never seen a baptism, you can see, oh, they have, they have a pool. I can get baptized. Also, why we leave it up. Also, while it's portable, the other reason, just to be honest, is that storing it outside was causing a lot of wear and tear on it. And we're just wanting to be wise with the resources God gave us. And it's safer in here than under the sun outside. Why do we have a free coffee cereal bar open on Sunday? I mentioned this already, but I'll just give you the two quick reasons. First, we felt providing breakfast would make the morning a little easier on moms. Get them up, dress them, get them in the car, get to church. We'll feed them, have your coffee ready. Secondly, because people are notoriously late to church, we felt like just a small incentive to get here on time, or maybe even a little earlier, wouldn't hurt. That's why we don't give you cereal during the worship. Does church begin at 10.30 or 10.35? Well, we advertise online that our service begins at 10.30. As you know, it begins at 10.30 with a five-minute countdown. In theory, the five-minute buffer is designed to give those who arrive right on time just a few extra minutes to settle, in addition to affording those running late a chance to make it before the worship begins. Why does the worship team not have a drummer? The simple answer is God hasn't provided one. Unlike churches who financially prioritize kind of a rock show aspect to worship, to the point that they'll hire musicians when needs like this arise, we don't exactly share in that conviction. We don't have the funds. Trust me, <laughs> we would love, I'll speak for Andy, we would love to have a drummer. It makes staying on time a little bit easier. But until God meets that need by bringing to our church the right person, we'll be content by creatively utilizing the team God's given us. I think our worship's pretty good. Why does Pastor Zach play bass on the worship team? Wouldn't the quality of the music be better without him? <laughs> it's true that when you factor in the incredible talent of Andy on the piano and Brian Wilson on the electric guitar, there is a significant drop-off in talent to the bass player. However, why? I play bass on Sunday really to keep me preoccupied 
and out of everyone else's business. Like, like if you don't know me very well, I'm a doer. Like, a little ADD, I like doing things. I hate sitting still. And because I'm a doer, if I wasn't relegated to the far corner of the stage that occupies me leading up to the point that the service starts, it would be difficult for the sound guy to do his job. Why? Because I'd be all up in his business. And the usher, I'd be ushering and greeting. I'd be doing a whole bunch of other things because I'm a doer. The problem with that is, is then I'd be eliminating other people doing what they should be doing on Sunday mornings and why they come up here early. So it's really to keep me out of the way. If the Lord brings us a really good bass player, I will still play bass unplugged behind just so I will have two bass players. You won't, I'll, just be, I'll be the only one that can hear it, but it just keeps me out of everybody's business. Why do we not print and hand out a weekly announcement sheet? Well, we publish a digital version every Sunday at c316.tv. So it's there. But really, we don't see the need or the justification for the money. Printing is expensive. In fact, at the previous church that I worked for, between services, literally it was the job of one of the ushers to walk around the sanctuary and pick up announcement sheets that had been left over. What's the point? People leave them behind. It's digital anyway. It's there. We don't justify the, the cost. Why do we have communion available every Sunday during worship? In recounting the Lord's instructions, that final Passover, the night before Jesus' death, the Apostle Paul not only recorded, records Jesus exhorting his disciples to partake in remembrance of me, but he also adds in 1 Corinthians 11 verse 26, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. For us, this topic of making communion available, it's not a matter of why do you, but why wouldn't you? <laughs> why wouldn't you make it available? You know, there are a lot of churches that choose to serve communion on a quarterly basis. And they do it specifically because they don't want the act to become ritualistic. This is why we don't serve it, but we just have it available. If you want to include it in your worship, you have the ability to. If you don't, you don't have to. There's no judgment to that. It's just here. Why do we offer communion with the option for either grape juice or wine? I address this topic in great detail in a sermon I, get, I taught in, in our John series. Um, we'll post that, so if you're interested in a, in a larger explanation, you can, you can refer to it. But let me just summarize it just th this way. Historically, grape juice was invented by a prohibitionist named Thomas Welch, who was also a priest, in the late 1800s as a way to eliminate alcohol from being part of the Eucharist. As a result, we offer wine because that's what Jesus offered the disciples and the church offered for 1,800 years. Grape juice is still available, though for anyone that has a hang-up with, with alcohol. Why does Chad normally do the welcome and not Andy, who's already on stage. There are two reasons. Have you ever heard the expression, he can't walk and chew gum at the same time? Andy literally struggles to talk before leading worship. 
the truth. Brother can pray and wax poetic, but you ever notice when? It's after he's done playing. His whole focus is on the music, and that's where his brain gets. It's also why he doesn't talk during the worship set. Have you ever been to churches where, man, you get like four sermonettes between songs? It's like, man, I just want to worship. You should just go pastor a church, man, because clearly you want to talk and not sing. Andy wants to sing and not talk when it comes to that. And so, so he can remain focused on what he wants to do, we in turn have Chad do it. I think we can also say, second reason, that of all of the elders, there's no question with those golden locks, Chad is the prettiest of all of the elders. That's really the second reason that, that Chad does the, the welcome. Aside from this, we do find it important that all of our elders are as publicly involved in our Sunday service as humanly possible. Hey, this is not the Zach show. I don't make decisions on my own. I don't exist in a vacuum. Publicly, we want you to see all of the elders involved. That's why uh, my, my involvement's obvious. Andy's is obvious, leading worship. It's why Kyle does the announcements. Chad, the welcome. When Chad's not available, Joe will end up doing uh, the welcome. Larry typically handles what we aff affectionately refer to as the awkward chair because you're sitting up front. But we want all of the elders involved in the service because we're all a team. And as a team, we're seeking to minister to the people that God has brought here. Uh, speaking of <laughs> the awkward chair, why do we have an elder available to the right of the stage during worship? Well, as pastors... We believe it's one of the primary jobs of our elders to be in constant prayer for you. In James 5, verse 14, we also read that if anyone among you is sick, let him call for the elders of the church. Let them pray over him or her, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. That's also why we have a thing of oil uh, also available. The Bible tells us to do it, so we just do it. You know, we know, and we're reminded often, that when you come to church... Many of you come carrying incredible burdens. Wait. That often even prohibits your ability to worship and the work that God wants to do through His Word. And so having an elder where if you're carrying that burden that you can come and just say, will you pray for me? We just, we just like the idea so that you can just talk to... If you've got to confess a sin, you have someone you can confess to. Hey, you can do all that where you're sitting. Or you can turn to the person next to you and just have them pray for you. But we just have an elder that's always available. We feel like it's just consistent with their biblical duties. Why do we have a scripture reading from the Psalms during the worship set? Practically, the Psalms are ancient songs. They're songs of praise, so it's only natural they'd be included in our worship. Secondarily, the reading itself, just full disclosure, it provides us an easy transition from the first set of worship where you're standing to a second set where you're asked to be seated. Finally, because I don't know when I'll be able to teach expositionally through the Psalms, having the Psalms just included in the life of our church in a simple way, in our corporal gathering, we just like it. Why do, we, why do we have five songs in the worship set? Well, some churches overemphasize worship by having more time dedicated to singing than actual the study of the Bible. 
and other churches have fewer songs that kind of make it difficult to connect and then transition to the, the Bible study. After a few years of trial and error, we believe five songs for us, which is roughly 25 minutes, because we don't play the chorus to death. You ever been there? Where it's like, man, that's the 30th time I've heard the same chorus. Can we move to something new? Sing a, a fresh song of praise. Because of the dynamic that, you know, first chorus, like we're just keeping it moving, right? 25 minutes, this is kind of our sweet spot. Why are you instructed to stand for three songs and then invited to sit for the last two? Now, before I answer that question, I, I want you to know that it's our desire for the sanctuary to be a place that you feel free. Free this way. We want you to feel a freedom for your physical posture to emulate the posture of your heart before the Lord. Like during any song, and we should repeat this more often. Chad, make a note of it. During any song of the set, if you want to sit, well, they haven't given me permission to sit. You sit. If that, like, you need to just sit. At any point, sit, sit. If you feel like you want to stand, but, you know, that's, this is the time that we've been told to sit. Like, it's not the Pope. Stand, rise. Like, we're not Catholic. Up, down, up, down, up, down. No. Like, we want your physical posture to emulate your heart. Good grief. If you feel inclined to raise your hands, lift them high. If you want to kneel, the altar's open. You're free to worship the Lord. Now, to the question, the reason that we invite you to stand at the beginning is that it just makes it less imposing for those who show up late to find a seat. <laughs> That's the truth. And the reason that we ask you to sit is so that you know you don't have to keep standing. <laughs> for the entirety of the worship set. You ever been in one of those churches where, where you're like, you know, everybody stand, and you're standing, and then like 12 songs in, you're like, my feet are killing me. Can I sit down? Is it okay to sit down? And you're looking around, and it's like, who's going to be the first? Because when the first person goes down, boom, bodies hit the floor. Why does our children's ministry end after 10th grade? First, it's a priority for us that our children have the opportunity to encounter Jesus on their individual level. Like, we want church to be relevant, instructive, fun for our children. This is one of the main reasons that we prioritizing you utilizing the children's ministry as opposed to your child sitting through the adult service. It's not that you can't. It's that we just don't advise it. Like, not only is the subject matter that I sometimes address inappropriate for certain age groups, but we believe it's a travesty when a kid grows up associating church with being boring. <laughs> we had a situation years ago. I did a whole, I did a Christmas message about just kind of the origins of some of the traditions. And one guy brought his daughter, and we were like, hey, you should really take that child to Sunday school. No, we don't want to get, okay. I'm just letting you, and then I, I totally ruined Santa Claus for that child. And it was like, I've warned you, man. But they were upset. It happens. Sorry, I ruined Santa Claus for your child. Still my friend. This, the question. The truth is the idea of adolescence 
is largely a Western construct with zero biblical evidence or basis. In Scripture, humanity is divided into only two categories. Have you ever noticed that? And tweens isn't one of the categories. You have adults and you have children. That's how the Bible divides humanity. See, our heart, our vision for the children's ministry, it's twofold and it's simple. One, we want to see our kids come to know and love Jesus. And two, we want to prepare them to be functioning members in the larger church community when they reach adulthood. Sadly, youth ministries lead to college ministries, leads to single ministries, it's church within a church, and they never transition. And we have a big problem in the church, losing generations. So as soon as we can, we transition them into the adult service. And we believe this 10th grade designation, it's more of a suggestion. We leave it to the individual child, the parent. People develop differently. It's not a rule or a law. But getting into the 11th grade, it's kind of a good time to start the process. I was a youth pastor for a decade. This is why upperclassmen are actually encouraged to join the church on their own. To get involved in various ministry capacities on Sunday, whether it's uh, being an usher or working in the sound booth or the children's ministry. We want them to participate in the adult events. Why has the building been constructed with colors and materials that possess an overt masculine feel? I even wrote the questions. I don't know what I'm doing. I could teach. I could teach an entire message on this topic. But the truth is that many men associate church with femininity. And they do that for good reason. Like even Jesus, who was the kind of man's man that men were willing to die for, has been neutered, largely speaking. He's been feminized. Looks like Fabio. Pristine hair. Manicured robes. Man, he was a construction worker. He was blue collar. You know, it's, it's, it's really an interesting study. But research reveals that when a mom comes to Christ and joins a church, the rest of her family follow roughly 17% of the time. But when a dad comes to Christ and joins a church, the rest of the family follows an astounding 93% of the time. Like the truth. Statistically speaking, when a man comes to church and likes it, the rest of the family come too. So from the inception of Calvary 316, and when we started painting this place and it was empty, it's been our desire to create an environment and largely a church culture that men not only feel comfortable with, but find appealing. Now, now, that's not to say that we don't place an equal value on reaching and ministering to women at all. It's just the data suggests that most women don't mind attending a church that's trying to help their husbands engage. So we focus on husbands. That's why we have wood everywhere and the colors are the way that they are. It's, it's all just designed to create an atmosphere where, uh, like we, 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 we had pink mats in the bathroom. And I was like, no, we need brown mats. We want our toilet paper to have extra grit. No, that's not true. Like, no, no, of all the things we'll never skip a corner on, it's the toilet paper. The toilet paper is important. 
don't want anyone leaving because, you know, that church is toilet paper. It's terrible. Why do we not offer a midweek service? The short end of the answer is that because of the in-depth, hearty nature of our Sunday morning service that, that has a lengthy Bible study to it, we don't believe it's necessary for your spiritual health and vitality to have another service. If you make, by the way, Sunday morning a priority every week, just an hour and a half, we believe you'll have more than enough to supplement your own study of God's Word. Beyond that, we kind of ascribe to what we, we've coined a Sunday plus one view on people's time availability. In our current cultural environment, most husbands and wives not just work, but they commute. Coupled with all kinds of secondary, extracurricular activities kids are involved with, most families just don't have the available time to make a trip to church for an additional service. What is the overall multimedia strategy of the church? It's at c316.tv. I'll let you read it. We like to end at noon. Why? Because by then you're hungry, and I don't want you upset with me. There are so many aspects of our church that I could have spent time talking about. Why does Zach always wear black shirts? Is he depressed? No, I'm fat. <laughs> the camera adds 15. For me, that's an additional 30. So I wear black. Get over it. It's slimming. Why do we have tables instead of, you know, a bunch of chairs? Well, we place a big emphasis on studying God's Word. So isn't it nice to have a place you can put your Bible? A place you can take notes? Why do we have pews? Of <laughs> all the things to have, pews. Well, they were given to us. So they were free. That's why they're there. And they'll stay there because they're impossible to move. Why do we do a live stream? That's an interesting question. Again, you can read a little bit more about it. We want to make sure that if you're sick or you're pregnant or pregnant and sick, that you're, if you're unable to make it, that our members at least have a portal that they can still participate and connect. Like We want it to be that. The problem is, is we don't want the viewing experience of our live stream to be better than being here. Because what the live stream doesn't intend to do is to give you an excuse to do church in your underwear, which is what it does in a lot of places. So it's good enough to give you a portal to be here, but not good enough that it's a better experience than doing well what you should. That's coming to church. So that's why that is. Again, all kinds of things we could cover. This is what I want you to walk away with more than anything. Nothing here is done without a reason. The other elders and I, like literally everything that we do, we talk about. We meet, we discuss, I'm going to be honest, sometimes painstakingly so. But it's important. We seek the Lord's leading. We weigh the pros and cons. In the end, we rely on a consensus. You know, unity emerging from the diversity of perspectives before we implement a change or do anything. Like if you take anything away from this morning's the why behind the what message, I pray you recognize the elders of Calvary 316. 
we take our God-ordained responsibilities to lead His church. And that's what it is. It's His. We're just the caretakers. We take that very seriously. I pray that fact is evident and that it's evident mainly by the way we go about leading our church. So, Father, Lord, we just need an abundance of your grace. And-